So last week we looked at Proverbs and we saw that, that, that we are a product of God's grace working within us. The grace that God has shown into our hearts and mind is revealed in Christ. He paid the penalty for our sin. It's something not that we can do, but something that God has done for us. And last week we saw the idea that if we think that we can work our way to heaven, that's a fool's race. And we'll lose. Because God has already done it for us and there's nothing we can add to it. This week, we're going to look at the other side of the coin. In that, if God has done this for us, what's the product in our life? We're going to see the motive that's behind the love of God in our hearts and what He enables us to do. So this week we're going to look at motive. And we're going back to Proverbs again. And this is another one of those scriptures that's very short, but it has a great meaning. And again, it's throughout the entire Bible, so we're going to take some time to unpack it. In Proverbs 21, verse 2, it says, Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts, the motive, the inner man, the, the mind and the will. And, and the fact of the matter is people are motivated by what they love. And that could be good or bad. Right? We see that around us a lot. So let's look at the bad first. In Romans 1, 18-25, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify God, him as God, or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense. In their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore God delivered them over to the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served something created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. And the point here is that God delivered them over to the cravings of their hearts. They loved things that wasn't God. Things that were separate from God. And that could be anything that is lifted up above the love of Christ in your heart is actually an idol before God. Because you chase after that instead of what Jesus wants. Everybody loves something. A sinner loves sin. And that's the motive for doing it. That is where we all come from. And Jesus, when we're recreated in his image, Jesus changes our love and our motive. And at some point, we realize we love Jesus more than we love our sin, and we give it all to him. Everything that we are, we give to him, good and bad. And slowly, he changes us into his image. And, and as he does that, it's important to understand that Jesus expects us to be engaged with him. You can't do this work by yourself. It's something that God has to work out within us. 
the first point is, is if we are actively engaged, we will draw closer to Jesus and won't be easily distracted. When I was young, I, I was raised on a farm, right? We talked a little bit about this last week. And as a result of that, I was able to work with my father a lot. You know? And my father had a couple simple rules. One was do what you're told. And the second one was, if you know what to do, don't wait to be told. Do it anyways. But we had a working relationship. And as such, we, we grew close. My dad and I, um, we were friends, too. I mean, he was the best friend or the best man at our wedding. You know, and it just seemed like that was a fitting thing to do because we were such close friends. But I got to know him from working. And when you're working next to someone, rubbing elbows, you become close to him. And I think that is very much like the relationship that God wants to have with us. He allows us to be engaged in the process of reconciliation. He wants us to help out in the ministry of that. And he's given us a job to do. We're under God's authority and dwelt by his spirit, and we need to work for the to do the work that he has for us to do. And our love is associated with activity. And there's a downside to that, too. There's like a lukewarm love that the Bible talks about that we want to avoid. In Revelation 3.15, Jesus says, I know your works. That you, speaking of the church of Laodicea, he says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Now notice that Jesus looks at their love by identifying their works, what they're doing, because that's where their motive of their heart is. It reminds me of the disciples who slept while Jesus was grieved before he bore the wrath of God in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, 36-45, we read, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he told the disciples, Sit here while I go over there to pray. And taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, uh, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he began, Then he said to them, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Because he knew he would have to pay the price for the wrath of God. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, so can you stay awake with me an hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping, because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came again to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the time is near. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Yeah. And I think a significant point of this is that here the disciples had the chance to pray with Jesus. It was really a time of need where he was sweating drops of blood because of the anguish that he was under. And what did they do? They were sleeping. Really? Can you imagine what Jesus it says right there? He was sleeping. Come on, stay awake and pray. But they didn't. They were sleeping. 
The point is that sometimes we're clueless and different and distracted by the flesh. We have a tendency in modern evangelicalism to dismiss obedience of faith altogether. There's a term that's called antinomianism. And it's, it means that since we're saved by God's grace, the moral law has no effect on us. And that's simply just not true. That's a lie. Because faith brings us into obedience. In Romans 3, 27-31, Paul says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By one of works? No. On the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. We talked about that last week. You're not justified by your works. However, if God is at work in you, something happens. Or is God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, for the Gentiles too. Since there is no one God who would justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we, do we then cancel the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And Paul calls it the law of faith. It's, it's, it's a, through the Spirit. You know what God wants you to do because He writes His law in your heart. Not that we're perfect, but God brings us into conformity with what He wants to do in His purposes. If we understand who God is, it helps us to live correctly. God is motivated by His love too. And, and this kind of defies uh, explanation sometimes. I really had a problem with this as I, as I went and I studied. I understood my my depravity before God. My sinful nature and my tendencies were contrary to what God and who God is, His holiness. And I came to the point where I, where I had to ask God, I said, why in the world did you send your son Jesus for me? Why did you do that? It doesn't make sense to me. Kind of a dangerous question to ask God, I think. But I had to ask him, why in the world would you do that? It doesn't make sense. You know, and the fact of the matter is, is that God did it because of his love. That's it. It wasn't because anything within me was lovable. It was just the fact that God loves and he acts out of that motive. And that's why he sent Jesus to the cross. I think we have a tendency to think, well, you know, I'm only like 20% bad. Right? But the fact of the matter is we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're totally alienated from God. We're 100% dead. You can't be like 30% dead. You're dead. You're separated from God. And God, out of the motive of His heart, did what He did. And I thank goodness, because now at least I understand it, because I know I don't deserve it, and neither do any of you. It's just a matter of what God did for us because of His great love. We read in 1 John 4, 7-10, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves God has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love God does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. And love consists in this, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you know that the Bible says that God loves us when we were His enemies? 
really think what that really means? For me, I became a Christian at 19, so I had time to kind of experiment that. And, and I understand that I was God's enemy. But if you're raised in the Christian church, which you should be, and that's a good thing, you may not have a really a full understanding of the separation between man and God. But it's there. It's not suppressed. He builds that bridge that we can walk with Him because of His great love. Our second point is motive is important. Love is the chief motivator of our actions. Jonathan Edwards wrote this a few hundred years ago. He said, The author of the human nature has not only given affections to men, but has made him very much the spring of men's actions. As the affections do not only necessarily belong to human nature, but are very a great part of it. Inasmuch, by regeneration, persons are renewed in the whole man and sanctified throughout. Holy affections do not only necessarily belong to the true religion, but are a very great part of that. And as a true religion is of a practical nature, and God has so constituted the human nature that the affections are very much in the spring of men's actions. This also shows that true religion must consist very much in the affection. Jonathan Edwards from 1753. If you're indwelt and guided by the Holy Spirit, you will want to do what He wants. Jesus put it this way in John 14, 15. He says, plainly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So what does God want us to do? Well, He commands us to love one another. One. We're supposed to share the gospel and make disciples, and we're commissioned to do that. Under Christ's authority, he said, this is what I want you to do so that other people can understand how to come to Christ. And this, this commissioning isn't just a command, it is, but it gives us a unity of purpose in the body of Christ. This is the one thing that we need to be about. Above all other things that we do in church, bringing people in as a disciple of Christ is the one thing that we need to be active about. If there are other things that don't do that, we should discard it, even if they're really popular. Making disciples is what we should be about in this church. Because that is what Christ has told us to do first. We are under his authority to do just that. We have an opportunity to go into our community and demonstrate God's love in a very real way. If you don't see the value of that, you're not acting in accordance with God's commission. And here's the thing. No Christian is ever stagnant. You're either moving toward God in obedience of faith or you're drifting farther away. You can't stay still. And we need a dynamic obedience to be actively engaged in doing what God is doing around us by His power and His ability. Why did Jesus come in the first place? He can save the lost. That's exactly why he came. And we're a product of that, right? I was lost in my sins. Dead. I can attest to that. We all were. And he brings us together. And he wants us to work with him to do the same thing that he's doing. To, to be combined in this work. And, and this is not a time to be asleep. There's no time for sleeping. There's no time to be comfortable. And frankly, I've and we've all been to churches where people are very comfortable just to come in Sunday, get the teaching, and go home, and they think they've done their religious duty. There's no time for sleeping. 
We need to be actively engaged with the gospel, going out and doing what God wants us to do. Not in a pushy way, not in a prideful way, but understanding who we are in Christ, that we are sinners saved by His grace, and we just want to share that message with somebody else. And that they're dead, and God may bring them back to life right in front of you. If you've never had that experience, that is awesome to see God bring a dead sinner to life right in front of your eyes because He's working with His Word that you just spoke to. That is so cool. And that takes training too, and we'll, we'll get to that a little later. I want to do some academic training to kind of help us in the end. Motivation is important. And we can see the difference in the stories of David and Saul of how motive can either lead a person astray or it can bring them back into fellowship with God and into obedience. In 1 Samuel 15, 7-14, this is the story of Saul. Now Saul was commanded by God very specifically to destroy the Malachites. They were under the ban. and they, He was not supposed to take anything back but destroy it all. So Saul defeated the Malachites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is in the east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people of the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless they utterly destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back and followed me, and he has not carried out my command. And Samuel was distressed and cried to the Lord all night long. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, get this, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he is setting up a monument for himself. Really? Then he turned and proceeded down to Gilgal, and Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Samuel said, And what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen? Obviously, he did not follow the command of God. Later in the story, 1 Samuel 15, 30-31, and Saul says, I have sinned, but Please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and go back with me, that I may worship the Lord your God. And Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. He said, I have sinned, but please honor me before the people. Where was Saul's heart? Did he really love God? Was his motive of his heart about loving God and doing things obediently towards God? No. His motive was his pride. Oh, but honor me. And he went and he set up an idol. A monument for himself. Really? Hmm. And the moral of this story is God requires obedience, not sacrifice. We are supposed to be drawn in through Christ and, and, and do what God wants us to do. Sometimes we can try to gloss things over by asking for forgiveness without true repentance. Saul was disobedient. He was supposed to destroy the Malachites. Saul kind of acknowledged his sin, 
But his main focus was on his honor before Israel. And he had clearly the wrong motive. He set up an idol for himself above God. And the third point here is when we set up the idol of self, it makes us a fool before God. Be careful who you choose. You know one thing I like about this church? You see the sign out front? Whose name's on that sign? Nobody. It says, Living Legends Church, here's who we are, this is what we need. No name. I think if you're going to put a name out there, it could be Jesus Christ, Great High Priest. That one will work. But when you start putting names on ministries, it, it, that's not how we were supposed to work. We work together. Jesus Christ is our King and our Lord. He's our Great High Priest. We're under His authority to do things. When it becomes about a person, that's wrong. We work together as a body of Christ. There's different kinds of idols, but anything that is put above the love of Christ in your heart is an idol. And that's between you and God, what that is. We need to love Christ above all things. And as we work with Him, we can become closer to Him. So how can we rise above our sin? Well, Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man is one who listens to counsel. And we can see this in the story of David. In 2 Samuel 12, 9-15. Now, was David perfect? No. <laughs> I'll answer that one for you. No. He made some whopper mistakes. And we're going to see that here. And this is the story of Nathan as he calls David out and said, Look what you did. Do you understand what you did? And he, and he look, check this out. 2 Samuel 12, 9-15. So why then have you despised the command of the Lord by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife as your own wife to be Bathsheba. You murdered him with Ammonite sword. Now therefore the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will make your wives and give them to another before your very eyes. And he will sleep with them publicly. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel in broad daylight. Now David responded, sounds kind of like Saul, but it's different, big time different. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied to David, the Lord has taken away your sin and you will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will not die. You will die. Then Nathan went home, and the Lord struck the baby that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became ill. Now look at the words that God uses to describe David's actions, and ours when we sin against God. We despise God and treat Him with contempt when we sin. We disregard His command. Well, there's no sin on the fence in that. We are all sinners that have, have fallen short of God's glory. And it's only through Christ working in our hearts and minds that we can come back into conformity with what He would have for us to do. It's part of the covenant. Fortunately, we serve a compassionate God who is motivated by love. We also see hope in the story of David because David repented and God forgave him and had regard for David for presumably a much greater sin than Saul. Saul just half-heartedly followed God. He didn't think he really followed God at all. 
But David committed adultery and murder. And it's not about the worst sin. It's about returning to God in repentance and following Jesus with all your heart. That's the main point. It's your heart's affections. Do you love Christ more? And, and later in the Bible in Acts 13, God says something about David that's quite remarkable. He sh- this is why David was forgiven. After he had removed him, Saul, he raised up David. This is in Acts 13.22. After he had removed him, Saul, he raised up David to be king concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do my will. This term, after my heart, the term after is katah, which means in accordance or according to. David loved what God loved. David was a man according to God's heart. Right? David loved God and he truly repented of his evil and actively followed God. And the matter of the heart and the will are closely linked. You know, it's easy to make it about us. We're self-centered. And a lot of very big ministries are all about that, providing for the self-centered people. But God wants us to be Christ-centered, to make it about Jesus. And there's a big difference. And, and I think we have some big decisions coming our way, for sure. And we need to make it about being obedient to God. Just do what God wants us to do. And give it to Him. Say, Lord, what do you want us to do? We're sheep. You let us know, and then we'll act by faith. Now we'll honor God. Don't do anything until it's a matter of obedience. The motive for obedience is the love of God or it's not of faith. The Lord knows everything and understands our motive for living. Love is our motive for life itself. And point four is that faith, love, and obedience are all connected like dominoes in a row, and one causes the next. Now I'm going to read a bunch of scriptures that Jesus said that just displays this plainly. And this is the logical if-then statement that we already mentioned. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, then you will keep my commandments. So it's a logical thing. One will follow the other. And he said it again in John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by the Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. In John 14, 23-24, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. And he who does not love me does not keep my word, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. And here Jesus gives both sides of it, that if you're motivated by love, that you love God, you will do what God wants. And if you don't love God, you won't. In 1 John 5, 2-4, John says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And I love this last one, Matthew 17, 5. While Peter was still speaking, trying to make plans of how he can build a tabernacle or whatever, God kind of interrupts. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, and I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Do what God 
Jesus Christ was saved. We are not saved by our works, but if we follow Christ, we're under the law of liberty, or, or Paul said the law of faith, or another section Paul said the obedience of faith. And God writes his law on a heart because of love. It's a part of the covenant. You will, point five, you will want to follow Jesus because of love. We, we kind of make it a legalistic thing sometimes. You know, if you say this little prayer, your sins are forgiven. Well, there's a lot more to it than that. Because if you accept Jesus Christ, He's your Lord and your Savior. Lord comes first. And if He is, if he is your Lord, then you do what He wants you to do. You're not motivated by the law of sin and death anymore. You're, Lord, you're motivated by the law of the Spirit of life. God works in you to, to bring you into obedience with what He would have you to do. Here it's talked about in the covenant in Jeremiah 31, 33-34. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord declares. I will put my teaching, or law, within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sins. You see, in the way this is written, is first he writes his law on your heart. And then you know God. And then after those two steps, then your sins are forgiven. It's a result of walking with God in obedience. Not that we're saved by our faith. Our, we're saved by our faith. Yes, we're not saved by our works. But if we are walking in faith, works will be created because God writes His law in our heart. Our motive for following Christ or obedience is His love in us. He recreates the image in conformity with His image and makes us a new creation. It's important to remember that He is all we need. Sometimes He reminds us of our need for which brings Him glory. Well, we need Jesus. And that's all we need. And sometimes He demonstrates that to us kind of miraculous ways. A few years ago, uh, I was in Desert Storm, went to combat, and I flew helicopters there. And it, it was really a bad environment. The first thing you did is you got off the plane, and it was like a hundred and gazillion degrees. I don't know. It was really hot. They hand you a hot bottle of water, said, here, drink this. It's like, you can't really breathe. And my family was on the other side of the world. I missed them. And fortunately, Pam took care of us as well. But there was separation involved. The flying was hazardous. Every time you come in and land in a dusty environment, the, the dust cloud envelops the helicopter and you can't see. You drive the helicopter onto the ground without seeing the ground. It's there. <laughs> Sooner or later, you'll see it. And then we had to fly night vision goggles, and we had to stay below 100 foot to stay below the radar. And with the night vision goggles, you can see kind of good, depending on the illumination, but there's so little contrast on the ground in the desert, you can't really see the ground. You know it's there, but how? And sometimes we had a radar altimeter, fortunately, and we had to keep track of that pretty consistently. And the stress kept on building in my life. And, and then there were Scud missiles flying over and the Patriots knocking them down. We were worried about getting hit with chemicals. That nerve agent stuff is some bad. And it was my job to actually defend against that. 
And if that weren't enough, one day my friend TJ and I were walking through the company area, and the commanding officer says, you two, come with me. What'd you do? What'd you do? So we went into this briefing, and and there was uh, other pilots there too, so it wasn't just us. We're like, Ooh, okay. But anyways, we had a mission to fly 100 miles behind enemy lines in a helicopter and drop these rangers off so they could look around at something and then go back in and pick them up later. And, and that was kind of stressful, you know? And as I worked through that, we went out and trained for this mission, I was like, man, Lord, please help me. This is this this stress is really kind of building and building. It's become a chronic fatigue, and oh man, it's just a lot to carry, you know. And well, it came about they were only going to send one crew in. They trained a number of us, and they sent a Blackhawk in. And was like, Ooh, good. <laughs> and the the helicopters are noisy, right? So everyone heard them coming. They dropped these guys off, and as soon as they dropped them off, they started getting shot at. Well, oh, that wasn't a good idea. And they got the guys out, so didn't see that one coming. But, but here's the point. Here's the point. When we actually went in into combat, we moved forward, and we went across the Iraqi lines. And I looked out on the map. I remember, I said, "All right, boys, here we go. We're taking enemy territory." Right? The most wonderful thing happened that I wasn't expecting. But the peace of God came and just encompassed that multitude. And I felt so close to Jesus. We have the seat that's between the pilot seats. It's called the troop commander seat. And I thought he was sitting right there next to me. And I actually hit the intercom switch to pray to Jesus. And I brought my foot off the switch because I realized I don't talk to Jesus, right? But I about started praying to everyone on the helicopter. And the point is this. When you're in deepest need, even a situation like that, God can come beside you and help you. No, he enables us to work together. And, and, and so we're in a bit of a situation right now, I guess. But the point is we need to be close to Christ and to do what he would have us to do. And he brings us together with him. Sometimes the enemy is all around us and, and all you have is Christ and you find him to be all in all. Jesus is everything you need. If Jesus can be all-sufficient in a place like that in combat, he can meet our needs here in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And I'll tell you what, us moving out and, and reaching out around us in our community is very significant. The enemy does not want us to do that, and we need to be engaged in prayer, understanding that God has our defense and he is our offense. We move together with Jesus. David learned how to run into Christ and trust him. And, and phrase it, David had more enemies than Donald Trump. Even his own family betrayed him. You know? Here, this is what he said in Psalm 18, 1 through 3. I love you, O Lord. I love you, my strength. This is the motive of his heart. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. David understood that God delivered him from his enemies and his sin. The Psalms are a poetic song towards God. And they were meant to be sung. 
We're going to go over at Psalm 61. And this is David's expression in song towards God. If you'd like, just close your eyes for a minute and listen to these words. Hear my cry, O God. Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to Thee when my heart is fainting. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for Thou hast been a refuge for me. And a tower of strength against the enemy. A tower of strength against the enemy. I will dwell in thy presence. Now we take refuge and shelter in the shadow of thy wings. Jesus has purpose to take us to heaven, to be with him. And he is with us today. Are you walking with God, your stronghold, the horn of your salvation? This is the heart of David. This is why God saved him, because he was a man after God's own heart. Eternity is just a breath away. Have you taken refuge in the shelter of Jesus' wings? Are you letting the word of Christ richly dwell in your heart, or are there idols there instead? And anything that inhibits God's work in our lives is an idol before God, because he controls you. He controls your heart. He has given us everything we need, Revelation through His Word. Inspiration in the Holy Spirit. We have salvation through His blood. And most of all, we have Jesus, the great high priest and king, seated at the right hand of God who intercedes for us. What else could we possibly need? I think there's one thing. We need a heart that loves like Jesus loves. That's the one thing that God gives us that we don't have until we come in conformity with Him. We need to have a heart that loves like Jesus loves. We'll end with a proverb. Proverb 18.10 says, The name of Yahweh is a strong tower, and the righteous runs to it like a temple.